You're listening to High Temperature Times, your source for refractory news and technology updates. My name is Griffin Patterson, and I am an application specialist with Harbison Walker International. As many of you know, HWI makes a lot of different products. In fact, we have over 1,500 different brands of refractory available. Some of these are your run-of-the-mill fire clay products, while others are the purest and most high-tech refractory on the market. This month, we're going to talk about a unique category of refractory that you just don't come across every day, resin-bonded brick. And to do that, I'll have process manager David Hartwich and marketing manager Corey Scala with me to talk about the history and technology behind resin-bonded brick. But of course, let's kick off the episode with a question from our technical marketing inbox. Remember, if you have a question for the podcast, reach out to us at technical-marketing at thinkhwi.com and use the subject line podcast. Today, we have a question from James McKinley asking, what's the difference between the various types of mortar you offer? Thank you, James, for the question. By different types of mortar, you're likely referring to the air set, heat set, and phosphate bonded mortars. Let's knock out the two easy ones real quick. Air set is your bog standard mortar that dries to a rigid set at room temperature and becomes water impervious after reaching about 650 Fahrenheit. Heat set, as you might extrapolate, will dry out at room temperature, but not form a rigid bond until roughly 2000 Fahrenheit. These are great for units that expect a little movement of the bricks in that first heating, locking in those bricks after the movement finishes. Phosphate bonded mortars are more akin to your heat set mortars, but set at a much lower temperature, around 600 Fahrenheit. They're special for their extra resistance to chemical attack, like from slag. Thank you again, James, for the excellent question. When it comes to bonding technologies and refractories, we have a few options. If you're using a brick, they'll probably be fired to a high enough temperature to be ceramic bonded. When using a monolithic, the water addition will react with lime to form a cement bond, also known as a hydraulic bond. And then there were the funny ones, like phosphate bonding and colloidal silica bonding. But today we're going to talk about a bonding technology that the ferrous and non-ferrous metals industry is very familiar with, resin bonded brick, also known as carbon bonded brick. And to help me understand that, I have David Hartwich here with me today. Hi, David. Hi, Griffin. Hey, can you uh, give us a glimpse of the man behind the curtain and tell us a little bit about yourself? Why, certainly. Uh, I've been working for HWI now in R&D for over nine years and have worked with almost every shaped product we manufacture. Uh, Most recently, I've been working with our resin-bonded brands supporting the steel industry. Uh, Coincidentally, my path supporting the steel industry has come full circle. You see, like many people, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I was in high school, other than something in engineering. Well, Carpenter Technology uh, sponsored a STEM materials camp at Lehigh University. I applied, attended the one-week camp, and was convinced a career in materials science was for me. So thanks to CarTech for seeding my path to refractory research. And now for a short plug, that these STEM experiences that are sponsored by HWI and other industrial companies are very influential to the students that they support. I'm proof, and I do everything I can to try to give back and volunteer for these experiences. Now, I'm not ashamed to say that I had to do a lot of research to understand the history of these furnaces that use resin-bonded brick and how the technology has evolved over the last about 150 years. To give the abridged version, I learned that Sidney Gilchrist Thomas improved on the Bessemer process to remove phosphorus from pig iron, so as to avoid embrittlement in the steel. To do that, he needed to add a basic limestone flux to the mix, which he couldn't do with the traditionally siliceous refractory, which is acidic, so it would cause a reaction. So he used a basic refractory that wouldn't be attacked by the basic flux. 
So Thomas Gilchrist converters, open hearth furnaces, and oxygen blast furnaces all use basic refractories so they won't be attacked by those fluxes. My question to you, David, is why are all these refractories carbon bonded? That's a great question. Um, And to go into that, I I think I'm going to bring up a little bit of history, if that's okay with you. A little more history. A little more history, yeah. (laughs) So you are correct in that originally uh, these vessels utilized burn mag and burn mag chrome refractories. These are basic burn brick. And in other areas of shops, uh, graphite crucibles were used, even back in the 1900s, to hold molten metal. So graphite is a superior material as it is not wetted by metal. Rather, it repels the metal somewhat like a drop of water on a freshly waxed car. Graphite alone uh, does not work very well, though, because it's prone to oxidation. I mean, like a piece of paper, it's just going to go up in flames. So over time, refractory companies, they knew this advantage, and they worked on impregnating the open porosity of basic burn brick with pitch. Um, so they pushed this pitch, this, this hot tar into these brick, uh, and this allowed a little bit of increase in life of these furnaces. Now, it wasn't until the 1970s and 1980s that researchers were brave enough to combine graphite, magnesite, and tar to form a composite shape. I say these researchers were brave because there's nothing more than an organic carbon bond that holds the shape together as it relies on the heat from steelmaking to form any kind of lasting ceramic bond. Oh. Yeah. So, so these guys, they're, they're not fired, right? They're not they're, fired, no. They're, we, we say they're cured, right? Which we'll get, I guess we'll get into a little bit later. But they do get fired by the process. Yep. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay. Why did refractory producers switch from tar and pitch to resins and other materials like that? So that's a really good question. Um, and it's actually a, a worldwide question. Um, so there's different trends in different areas of the world, but refractory makers in North America moved away from pitch uh, due to worker safety concerns. And you see tar and pitches used in the 1980s during the product's uh, infancy were found to be an environmental and health concern. Phenolic resins were introduced as an alternative. They provide the same level of residual carbon after the initial heat up as tar, but they don't have the dangerous volatiles that the tar contains. So these these phenolic resins, these liquid resins that we use, we're just taking that resin, we're mixing it up with whatever refractory brand, we're pressing it into a shape and then shipping it out? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, really, we're just, uh, we're mixing the liquid resin binder with the different grades of magnesite, different qualities, uh, and quantities of carbon, uh, and various antioxidant packages to provide our customers the lining solution they need for their particular application. Uh, these mixtures are then hydraulically pressed, set, and cured in an oven before being packaged for the customer. And just to give you an idea, Uh, Today, our White Cloud Michigan plant puts out over a hundred different brands for ladles, EAFs, BOFs, and tap holes. So there's a lot of different ratios and and things you can do to create different properties for our customers. Before I dig into that curing, which I definitely want to do, can you tell me a little bit more about these antioxidants and why they're important? Uh, Sure can. Um, So as as you remember from earlier, the, the carbon... When it sees oxygen, it's just going to light up and, and leave the brick. And it's funny because carbon and the graphite is the, the best defense that the brick has against slags in the steel. 
We're trying to use these antioxidants to protect the carbon from essentially oxidizing and burning up and leaving the brick. So that's why we don't make bricks of pure carbon because you need all these other components to be mixed in with the brick to pr protect it. Maybe maybe this is more of a question for for Corey later on, but you know I, you say oxygen's bad for these the carbon bond in these in these refractories, but these go into oxygen blast furnaces. That's a very good point. So that is a whole series of brick, the BOF line that we manufacture. And there are some really cool antioxidant packages that we utilize in those brick. So I, I said I wanted to get back to these, this curing. And what, what is the curing process? What are you doing here? And why do resin bonded products need cured? What we're doing in the, the curing process, we have a heat setting resin. We need to uh, cross-link the, the resin to harden it and, and give you a that, that brick shape. If we didn't do that, if we just pressed the brick and we never heat set it and cured it and we didn't get that resin to cross-link, um, you would essentially be shipped like a plastic. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a, like a thermoplastic material, right? It, it's, yes. It's liquid and gooey, and then as soon as it sees this temperature, it flashes and it sets in, the, in a hard, kind of like Bakelite, right? Mm -hmm. it, well, that's exactly what this uh, resin is. It's a, it's a Bakelite resin. Yeah. No way. Yeah. <laughs> so as you mentioned that these we're using these phenolic resins and, you know, with a little Wikipedia search, you see that a phenolic resin is a, it's a hydroxyl group that's connected to a benzene ring. Um, any chemist will hear benzene rings and think, oh, my God, that's very smelly. So in this curing process, it's probably quite smelly, right? Yes, it's uh, it's very smelly for sure. And luckily at our manufacturing sites, uh, we do a great job of sucking all of the gases that are coming out of these drying baking ovens. And we either incinerate the gases to, to remove all these VOCs that are smelly, or we there's also a catalytic converter type uh, equipment on it as well to ensure that these VOCs aren't getting expelled in the atmosphere or even on the plant floor. Um, so we take great measures and great lengths to do those kinds of things to, to protect our employees and, and the, the environments that our plants are in. Even though it might not be as smelly at the plant, it, it is interesting because phenolic materials have a really rich and interesting history. Um, it is a wide class of, of material. So maybe you could think about the smell from a bottle of peaty whiskey, right? So peat, which is used in whiskey, when they what they do is they burn it and they smoke it, and that smoking creates a phenolic compound that gives the peaty whiskey that taste. Others might recognize phenols from carbolic acid, which is a famous phenol first utilized by Joseph Lister to sterilize wounds that otherwise would have have would have required amputation. Um, others might think about lysol, which or originally used a phenol known as cresol. Uh, this was later discovered to be hazardous, very much like the tar and pitch that you uh, mentioned before. But in its safety-driven redevelopment, the scientists worked very hard to retain that Lysol smell that it was known for. So when we're talking about burning off phenols, you can imagine that we're talking about a very aromatic environment. But anyways, I digress. Um, now that we have an idea of what resin bonding is and how they're made, let's talk about the materials that we can use them with. Can you just chuck resin into any refractory oxide system and call it a resin bonded brick? Or does this carbon bonding only work with a particular refractory group? Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose in the, for the most part, you probably could throw this resin in just about any material system and make a resin bonded product. The real thing you got to think about, though, is the application. You're not going to want to resin bond a brick that goes into a glass furnace because 
well, the, the, the carbon is not really going to do that glass any, any help. If anything, it's actually going to cause it to bubble and foam and no one wants that. <laughs> so yeah, but, but to answer any, any reducing, um, atmosphere type application might benefit from a resin bonded product. So what are some of the refractory, uh, categories that we put with resin bonded brick? Uh, so with uh, HWI right now, we would be uh, resin bonding uh, our mag carbon lines and our aluminum mag carbon bo- lines, and those are both for the steel application. I'm quickly learning that our resin bonded portfolio is as vast as it is high tech. I mean, how deep does this rabbit hole go? You said we have like a hundred different products in just a, a couple applications alone. Those hundred different products are not the same product. What kind of properties are we trying to, to teeter totter here? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's a couple different properties that we're looking at when we're designing a brick solution for a customer. The first one being slag resistance. And this is really, you know, resistance to the corrosion, the chemical corrosion of the slag that we're looking at, or even the steel if it's lower in a ladle or somewhere else in the furnace. Um, The next one would be erosion. So Erosion is more looking at the strength of the brick product. So, you know, the stirring of steel, it's, it's not exactly like stirring water in a, in a bucket. We're, we're talking about liquid steel. This stuff is, is heavy and it'll erode very, very quickly. The next one I would say uh, thermal shock is a biggie, especially recently. We've been designing a lot of uh, specialty problem-solving brands to prevent thermal shocking and, and vertical cracking that uh, we see in some ladle products. Uh, and lastly, or actually not lastly, but second to last, oxidation resistance. Got to protect that carbon. Different shops run differently. And in some, you know, there's too much oxygen that might be hitting the brick or they're not running a consistent level of, of slag. So the, the carbon will oxidize. Oh, and, and finally, this is the big one, cost. Um, it's all about getting the right lining solution to the customer at the right cost for them. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about some of the newer work being done on the resin bonded portfolio at the ATRC. Yeah. Um, so we've got some, some good stuff coming up. We've, we've recently launched, uh, the barricade line. And that is, like I said earlier, it's going, going against, uh, thermal shock is really the primary driver of that line. Uh, it's a dual carbon system. Did a couple other special things to it over the iterations of it, working with a couple different customers. So I'm really excited about this barricade line. I think it's going to do some really great things for the industry. We've come a long way from the tar bonded ramming mix that went into the converter floors 150 years ago. Uh, thank you, David, for educating us in the ways of resin bonded refractory. We'll take a short break to digest all of that. But when we get back, I'll be talking with Corey Scala about resin bonded brick and their use in today's steel industry. Did you know? In addition to resin bonded magnesia carbon, HWI domestically produces aluminum magnesia carbon, also known as AMC. HWI's creation, the Comanche, can be a good alternative in times of up and down or discontinuous operation. Though no refractories like to experience rapid temperature changing, especially those in cooling, Comanche combines thermal shock-resistant raw materials with a positive permanent linear change, placing it as the number one material chosen for startup of new steel mills. Some of the key attributes of Comanche include hydration resistance, thermal cycling resistance, 
barrel cracking prevention, steel penetration resistance, and slag buildup prevention. Additionally, Comanche products require no special dryout, no mortar or backfill material, no half or stagger bricks, and no extra lime or lime for slag coating. If you'd like to learn more about Comanche, reach out to us at technical-marketing at thinkhwi.com for more information. Welcome back. With a good background on resin bonded technology, how it's made, and why it matters, I want to transition to the real deal. To do that, I have Corey Scala here with me to talk about the ferrous metals industry and how and why resin bonded brick is used. Welcome, Corey. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, man. So let's let's kick this off with a little background. Maybe can you tell me a little bit about yourself and your role at HWI? Right. Yeah. Um, so I've been with HWI for about a year and a half now. Um, about 10 years in the refractory steelmaking uh, industry. And currently my position with uh, HWI is in marketing for ferrous applications. So I'm looking after mostly ladle applications with a little bit um, in AOD and some other secondary steelmaking applications. As an application specialist for HWI in the EEC group, I know nothing about resin bonded brick. Um, It just doesn't really fit with our application. But it's quite a hit in the ferrous and non-ferrous metals industry. So I'll ask you, where do you see it used most? Yep. Used everywhere, let's put it that way. Everything from hot metal transport, um, carrying iron from the blast furnaces over to the BOF shop, also in the basic oxygen furnace, electric arc furnace, uh, steel ladles, of course. And then binder system itself is also used within a variety of different products throughout steel making. So that can be you know, flow control pieces or uh, tundish dry vibe materials. There's not really a limit to the applications that can hit. So it really is a powerhouse technology in ferrous metals. Uh, are all these the same products or is there a more diverse array of technology involved in either resin or the material? Um, yeah. So there's a couple different main resin types um, used in brick manufacturing. Those are Rezols and Novalex. And typically, uh, magnesium carbon bricks are based on Rezol technology, which is a liquid at room temperature, so you can start mixing it with grains and produce your bricks. Novalex are typically used in dolomite production, um, just because Rezols can emit some water on heating. So Novalex are a solid resin that have to be dissolved with the solvent in order to get it liquid so you can perform the mixing process. So those are the two main types of resin used within the bricks. Um, As I kind of hit on, from the wide variety of applications, you're going to have a lot of different process conditions. So um, pretty much every refractory mineral that you can think of is put into a resin-bonded brick. On the iron side, um, it's more of an acidic process, so you stay with alumina, silicon carbide, carbon brick. Um, In the BOF and ladle, it's more on the basic side, Uh, so you're working with MGO and CAO, like magnesia and dolomite. Hmm. So you were saying with the different types of resin that one of them emits a little bit of water when it's heated up, and, and water's bad for magnesia, correct? Yes, but worse for dolomite. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I remember you talking about these materials in a presentation a couple months ago and how we have fused materials and dead burn materials in our in our brick making process. I mean, fused I get, right? It's high purity crystals formed from a melt, um, in theory. 
But what the heck is dead burned, and why would it be considered in one place over fused? Uh, there's actually even a third, uh, which is light burned magnesia. So we'll start with light burned or caustic calcine magnesia. Um, when you when you pull magnesite out of the ground, it's in a carbonate form, uh, so it's not very refractory. You have to drive off that CO2 before you get to just the magnesium oxide. So that's what happens in the process of calcination. So that's typically done between 1400 to 1600 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, the main difference between that and dead burn is the temperature. When you get to dead burn, you're talking over 3000 degrees Fahrenheit. This is where you get the centering of the grains um, and actually enlarging of the crystals within uh, the actual aggregate of the material. And thirdly, the fused magnesia, which can be done in two process, a one-step process or a two-step process, um, is where you actually melt the MGO uh, in a furnace, just like steelmakers use um, electric arc furnace, um, temperatures over 5,000 degrees. And you get a full melted ingot of material, which cools and crystallizes as it cools. It's crushed down into usable material and sorted by grade. And then it's used to make bricks. So the difference between light burn, dead burned, and then fuse is really the amount of work you put into it. Yep. Yeah, the, the one step, two step I alluded to, the one step uses um, magnesite as a raw material for the fusing. And the two step is using calcined for the raw material. I'm thinking like as, you, as you're going up that grade, you're probably getting lower porosity, higher density, larger grains, which probably tell something about the, the wear characteristics and the, and the chemical characteristics of it. Am I in the right, right area there? Yep, for sure. Um, larger grain size, lower specific grain boundary area, uh, less areas for slag to get in and attack. I appreciate you taking the mineralogical terms and putting the material science words into it and something that I can understand because mineral mineralogy has been a weakness of mine. So, of course, these are some high technology bricks, as we just mentioned, with, with all the fused materials and the dead burn materials. But beyond that, there's probably some magic dust we put in them to make them work harder for us as well. Yeah, for sure. Didn't all happen overnight, but there's a, a wide variety of uh, combinations you can make and uh, the minor additions to the resin bonded bricks as well. Um, speaking mostly about magnesium carbon, I mean, you've got graphite, carbon black, all different antioxidants that can be used within the bricks, um, and they each serve a purpose, and it's kind of a balancing act. Um, graphite's used because it's anti-wetting characteristics, so basically slag balls up on top of it instead of spreading out. Um, that helps with preventing slag from going into the brick and dissolving the MGO grains. A side effect of that is it also increases the thermal conductivity. So you can't just add graphite everywhere or you'll be pulling heat out of the steel and wasting that energy. So that's why in the slag line, um, which is where most of the slag resides for most of the process, you want a higher carbon content brick. Um, and as you move down into the barrel, which is mostly in contact with steel, you don't need as high of carbon contact because it's only seeing slag as the ladle drains um, while it's being casted. What are the what are some of the brands we're talking about here? Um, with HWI as a leading supplier to the steel industry, I'm sure a lot of these brands you're about to mention will sound familiar to, to many listeners. Yeah, um, probably the best known brand there is is uh, Phantom. 
Phantom XL-127 is a really big runner. In addition to that, we've got the Quantums, Magnums, Renegades, which all provide for different aspects or different parts of the ladle or application, um, depending on what your need is. But our most exciting, the newest one we have, is the Barricade. Um, one of the biggest problems that customers have been facing over the last years, well, at least in my experience in the last years, has been vertical cracking and spalling in the ladle. And usually there's a couple different philosophies on how to resolve that, and that's increasing the flexibility or uh, the strength of the brick. So kind of two extreme opposites. Um, with barricade, we're trying to hit on increasing flexibility with maintaining strength. Um, so you're preventing cracks from happening in operation, which gives you a longer life by utilizing more of the brick and not having to remove it from service because cracks have developed. What do you mean when you say flexibility? When I say flexibility, um, we're talking about elastic modulus. So you want a lower elastic modulus. A high elastic modulus is actually your um, like brittle bricks. Yeah. Um, so you want uh, lower elastic modulus, which means as you put force on it, the, the brick can deform but not fail. And that's the flexibility. Um, so as you heat up, MGO expands, it absorbs those stresses. As you cool down, it contracts and it absorbs those stresses. And that's kind of the goal. That's really cool. You know, elastic modulus is not something that is, is talked about in the refractory industry, but it's something that all, all material scientists will uh, immediately recognize. Yeah, for sure. And that's pretty cool that we're incorporating that science into the refractory world. For sure. Well, if I'm honest, I feel like I've really bit off more than I can chew here. We've got a massively deep technology leveraged in a wide array of brands for a plethora of applications. On one hand, I'm glad that we always have the opportunity to come back and talk about more in future episodes, but let's wheel it into something that I know many people want to talk more about, and that's Barricade. Can you feed me a quick product pitch? Uh, yeah. Um, essentially, Barricade is the the solution to today's problems with up and down operations um, where you're getting heavy cracking um, in the ladle slag line transition area. Um, and the problem is when once you develop these cracks and they open up, you could have four inches of brick remaining as the meat of your slag line brick, but at the bottom of the crack, you've got one 1.5 inches and you have to remove it from service and you throw away that extra brick that you could have been utilizing if you could just heal those cracks or prevent them from happening. Um, that's where Barricade comes in. And it's the effort to reduce the stresses in the brick so they don't crack, give it that flexibility we talked about earlier, um, and really allow for the brick to absorb some of the, the stresses you see in operation and let the MGO do its job. Well, thank you, Corey. The ferrous metals industry has come a long way from the Bessemer process. I'm sure if I told my steelworker grandfather that these ladles are getting over 100 heats in some of these applications these days, he would call me a liar. And it's all thanks to the continuous development done by researchers like David Hartwich with the help of technical support from Corey Scala. If you'd like to learn more about the Barricade Brick or any of the other products discussed in this episode, reach out to us at technical-marketing at thinkhwi.com. Next month, we're going to mix things up a little bit with Metals March, where we will be giving you weekly episodes with short glimpses into the many different metals industries served by Harbison Walker International. 
Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple, Google, and Spotify so you're notified when they come up. Thanks, as always, for listening.